But the impressionist said, but what if I fail? And then it says, but darling, what if you fly? And that's that, that moment that I have helped a lot of organizations up to this point to really see how they can fly. And it's hard. The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. Teresa Caro, welcome to the Big Thank Self you. Show. Thank you, Chad. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And as we begin all of our episodes here on season five, we are exploring the idea of the big self or big self. And so what does first come to mind for you, Teresa, when we think of being in our big self, and does that to you contrast with what it means to show up in your little self? And you know what's interesting, and I don't know if you knew this, but big up yourself was originally a Jamaican expression. That I did spread. not. Yes. So it's interesting. I think it's related to what uh, you were looking for with big self, but it's really, according to Urban Dictionary, it's to show props or respect to oneself for a superior achievement. It's really like patting yourself on your back. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Whereas little self to me, as I did a little bit of research on that, felt like if one is propping yourself up and patting yourself on the back and giving yourself happiness, the little self is more stepping on others. It's more that that ego or egotistical, almost like a bullying kind of aspect where you're stepping on others in order to get ahead. And I thought that was an interesting contrast. That sure is. And no, there is no thing that we are looking for. I'm I'm purely I'm really curious what comes to mind for other people. And it does it does find itself working its way into our conversations at times. And, you know, so. In terms of background for why I reached out to you, I know you've worked actually here in Chattanooga uh, mm -hmm. and you are currently in Atlanta right now, but um, I am, but, but I, uh, you know, found you on, we're, we're friends on LinkedIn and I saw that you had established a coaching consultancy company called the Luminist. And I, at the like on a certain day before I reached out, I came across this really 
profound quote that just hit me at the right time by Richard Rohr. And before I actually even ask you the next question, I'd like to share this quotation. So the quote by Richard Rohr is about being in a liminal state. So here is the quote. The the Latin word limen means threshold. So liminal space is an inner state and sometimes an outer situation where we begin to think and act in new ways. It's where we are betwixt and between in transition, having only one room or stage of life, but not yet entered the next. We usually enter liminal space when our former way of being is challenged or changed, perhaps when we lose a job or a loved one during illness, at the birth of a child, or a major relocation. It is a graced time, but often does not feel graced in any way. In such space, we are not certain or in control. And so you have formed a this company called The Liminist. Could you tell us a little bit about your story? I know part of it has to do with you are going in and for a long time, for decades, you have helped individuals and corporations to be able to do the scary work of managing <laughs> change. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's really interesting that you had the quote, and I love that quote. It's on my website. It's what brought the two of us together. Uh, I would go on to add that Father Richard Bohr actually said that the liminal space is where we are most teachable because mm-hmm. we are most humbled. And I would say us, all of us who are leaders, and hopefully those who are very self-aware, have found themselves in different liminal spaces and different states of humility where we are humbled and we have an opportunity to learn from that situation. So I've been humbled a lot in my career. So I would say that makes me sort of a specialist in the liminal liminal state. So thus liminist, a specialist in the liminal state. Oh, well, maybe you're being too modest. Like, uh, I understand (laughs) you've been humbled a lot. I've, uh, so have I. And I find that, you're right. You know, like it's easiest to, I've, I've self-observed it's easiest to come to coaching or therapy when I am feeling low and reduced and I just am emotional. And then after two or three sessions, I'm kind of like, I'm feeling pretty good. I don't know what, I don't know. I don't need coaching. And uh, so I've, I've learned as well as I try to coach others too, when they start to like, not, you know, not um, hit the next, the next appointment is like, once you get to that next stage of growth, the hard part begins What where you yes. want to, to maintain it. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's actually very interesting that you say that because that is a big part of what we offer to individual clients, leaders, but also to teams, to advertising agencies, Using advertising agencies as an example, from the very beginning, when an advertising agency is launched with a great idea and very excited people, there are different stages and phases that a growing advertising agency should actually go through, right? 
and and if they don't go through those stages then they are they become stuck and it's those not it's that next stage that next phase that is so difficult for them so for example most agencies are founder led right you have one you have two you have three founders that come together with an idea and they decide to create this unique approach to advertising or something they feel is unique and then they go on to the next phase well that next phase is some kind of growth you're moving from 10 people to 20 to 30 and as you get more and more people around you realize that just the basic act of communicating and staying on the same page becomes more difficult right and yeah. so then you need to put the structure in place to make sure that staying on the same page communication is clear and accurate and consistent the original things that made you unique have now become gold standards. And so now you can grow it and others without you having to be in the room, others can grow. And so that's another stage. Another stage after that is moving from founder led to leadership team led. And so what does this mean? This means that a founder can no longer be in every meeting. A founder can no longer make sure that everything is being done her way. And this now needs to be led by a group of people that the founder is, has trusted, has nurtured, has cultivated. And they then, in turn, start making critical business decisions. They then, in turn, start leading other organizations. Well, that circling sounds, back. Oh, to sorry. What, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> but circling back to what you said, this is when it really starts getting hard. I was about to say that is to me, isn't that a pivotal moment of the oh. test of how well you were as a leader? Yes. Well, how you are as a leader, but also how many of us are, I call it a leveraged model. How many of us are actually taught through our career that eventually you learn something, but then eventually you need to pass it on to the next person. We're all taught that our quality of work is based on the work that we do. And that the idea of having to pass something, something on that really has defined who we are, that has mm. defined our value, that in and of itself is really scary and, and very difficult. Imagine being a founder of an organization and now that founder needs to pass that on to this team. They don't know if they've selected the right people. They don't know if they've selected if the right people are ready for it, if they don't know if these people are <laughs> going to sink it. There's a great quote from an impressionist. Of course, her name is going to escape me. But the impressionist said, but what if I fail? And then it says, but darling, what if you fly? And that's that, that moment that I have helped a lot of organizations up to this point to really see how they can fly. And it's hard. There's been a lot of times in my career where I'm taking certain steps and the people that asked me to do it originally are not understanding what I'm doing. They're not understanding my steps. They're not understanding that hard things take a long time. And we can talk about muscle memory mm -hmm. later in the conversation. But these things take a long time. And there's certain things that need to be in place before that fly moment can happen, before things that fly wheel starts going and then starts going faster. And then you finally feel comfortable that, You've now moved from founder-led 
the leadership team led. And there's several other phases that we could probably spend a whole nother podcast talking about as agencies go through another, uh, other stages. I I bet. <laughs> uh, I, I think that perhaps it's because of the startup community and I've heard so many of the stories. It see, you can see like certain leaders having what it takes to do some of those amazing things to get it to that first level. Uh, but then that inflection point that you're talking about of transitioning yeah. from almost the personality or personalities to how how are these being more system wide uh, distributed? And you come in, you come in at this stage and other stages. So what I do is there has to be. Well, actually, let's back up for a second. I'm a strategist at at heart, so okay. I need to make sure that there's a return on investment. And as you and I know, coaching is an investment, right? It's not. This is not an inexpensive thing. You're coming in, you're, you're investing some good dollars. You need to make sure there's a return on investment. And so for, I like to call it ROSI, return on coaching investment. And hmm. you need to see, okay, how stuck are you? And if we can get you unstuck, if we can get you out of this liminal state onto your next phase of your journey, what's that value to you? So a lot of times that starts with, me just working with executives and with a standard traditional executive coaching agreement. There's a lot for them to unpack. They're not exactly certain where to start. They know that they're stuck in some way or they know they can be doing better, but they're not 100% certain where to start. And so we'll, we'll coach for a few months and we'll figure that out. Generally where that goes is maybe there's one or two people on her team that she would love for me to talk to and coach and add to the coaching list. So we do that. What I come to find out is there's usually there's that thing, that inflection point that if we can get together and we can solve together as a team and put together a plan, now we get that flywheel going. So ultimately what my end goal is with with organizations is to create some kind of workshop or, or working system. We all get together. We start putting the plans in place to solve this particular challenge. But the key is this, and I mentioned muscle memory earlier. Muscle memory, as all of us who have worked out, um, all of you golfers out there, I'm a golfer. Muscle memory is is both a great thing because you can do the same swing over and over again, but it's also mm -hmm. a pain because if if day-to-day -day gets back into the situation, you know, you, you come out of this workshop and you go back to your day-to-day, day-to-day is a very strong influencer. And as you're going quickly, muscle memory comes back and you end up doing the same things that you were doing before old the workshop. Habit. Yeah, old habits. Exactly. And, and, and it, it comes out in times of stress or reactivity. Yes, exactly. Stress, reactivity, um, the whole idea of cognitive shortcuts. Uh, if, you, if you were in a state of urgency, you go back to what you know and you go back to what's easy. And so you need to have that that ongoing relationship. And so my ideal situation, my ideal recommendation is for organizations to have more of an ongoing relationship with a coach. One that you have a specific goal in mind and you have a plan and you're meeting on a quarterly basis with maybe some one-on-one -on -one sessions in between. I have found that that is the greatest way to 
get unstuck, to create new mus- muscle memory, and to get to that next phase. Working with what with both parties, you mean like the the leaders and and the teams? I was just trying to track yes. exactly what. Okay. Go ahead. And that really depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. If you are doing, so a lot of times with agencies is they create something, but then they don't have an end goal, right? They don't, there's a lot of different ways that an agency can go. They can grow and get bought and they can grow and they can turn it over to a family member, becomes more of a legacy. And I've worked with a lot of agencies like that that are hugely mm-hmm. successful. Uh, they can grow and merge with another agency. There's a lot of different ways they can do it. The challenge is, is founders, A, don't really know sometimes where they want to go, or sometimes they do know, but they don't exactly know what to do to communicate this to the rest of the organization, or they just never felt comfortable communicating it to the rest of the organization. And so that, that workshop sometimes starts with the founders and just helping them work together and figure out what their future is. And then it goes to the leadership team. Or a lot of times the founder is very clear. And so then we're skipping that first step and going next to the leadership team. But working collectively together to make sure that we stay in alignment is a recipe for success. Do leaders in these roles, are they always in what they, like, are they always coming to you in in a state of kind of humility in this liminal state or are they just as often as not perhaps stressed out they know something's not going right and they're just like they they want some change and and uh, <laughs> I, I i'm just curious kind of some of the maybe the ethos or the cultures that you find yourself walking into and how maybe you navigate some of those different uh, vicissitudes What a great word. I love that word. I'll have to add that to my list. (laughs) Just came up with that. Yeah, I love it. I don't even know if I could pronounce it. (laughs) Um, The key to success, and I don't know, well, the key to success is a marketing leader, any kind of leader, really. I I just tend to specialize in the marketing and the advertising agency space. Mm -hmm. Any kind of leader, in order to do this and do this successfully, need to have a transformative mindset. That's really uh, my focus is to work with people who believe they have a transformative mindset. And the moment they start feeling uncomfortable, that that fight, you know, that fail versus flight kind of moment, Mm -hmm. yes, they can become humble, that they are open to us asking you know, the what questions to, to help them get through the next phase and to start thinking differently. So transformational as opposed to transactional. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. So you mentioned uh, doing transformational coaching and some of your approach, and I'm sure that you use tools to facilitate being able to have good conversations. But the the approach that I've decided to take, and, and actually before I get into that, where your organization goes and this under this emotional intelligence and understanding and having emotional intent, intelligence is so needed with phrases like blind spot and divide and conquer can be offensive or phrases like gaslighting and sticky floors and gas ceilings are ex- using to explain away bad behavior 
this is where emotional intelligence is is so important because really it's just it's a breakdown in communication it's a breakdown in understanding wouldn't you agree Oh, yes. And I love the strength finders. One of the things that I find so resonant about the Enneagram is uh, is its very multi-dimensionality where you can be looking at the behavioral part of things, but you can also be looking at like, well, what's the motivations operating behind each individual so that it opens up uh, communication better. We can respect each other. We're like, oh, so this is why you are... being a little brusque or abrasive with um, your communication style. But I have to say that one of the powerful tools that we use to complement the Enneagram when working with uh, leaders and organizations is the 360. We use this LCP 360, and it is this incredible, powerful, integrative tool that isn't threatening to people in the sense that it's people know what a 360 is, unlike they don't all yeah. know what the Enneagram is. And the the uh the, it's it's a snapshot in time, it's not your personality. So it's maybe less threatening to people. They're like, okay, I'm showing up more in reactive stress space than in creative leading space. And, oh, and I'm assessing myself uh, this way, but I'm actually seen this way. So you can have conversations about blind spots and different things more easily that way. Yes. Yes. And that's why what you and I do is very complimentary. So Hmm. where you are focused on that area, I'm focused on, setting up the team for success. What kind of person is successful in the role today? And what are the three dimensions that make them successful? So then we can Mm. apply that to future hires. So at Luminous, we use a Department of Labor approved assessment called Profile XT. Okay. Um, And I like it. I like it for several different reasons. One, it's three-dimensional. And you said your you know, Enneagram is dimensional as well. Yeah. In this case, Profile XT looks at learning style, cognitive. Um, second, it looks at behavioral, which is you know, similar to Enneagram. And it also looks at interests. Um, the second reason why I like it is it comes into a range, which a lot tend to do, but I like the the one to 10 range. I love the fact that no one's going to say to me, oh, you're an extrovert or you're an introvert. Instead, it might come across and say, okay, I'm an extrovert, but in a scale of one to 10, I'm more like a six, which means I'm going to need to recharge at some point. Yeah. Whereas my colleague might be a 10 never needs to recharge and may drive me bonkers after a while. So I, I love that idea of Profile XT in that area. Um, and the third I, I do too. I and to if, if I just may just say that I remember um, in the late nineties, uh, for some reason I was just, ha- I was taking the Myers-Briggs a lot. And I remember at this one point, I actually got an X in X, X. And I was like, what's X? And they're like, that's when you're right, right in between you're, you are. And I was, I, I was like, well, that's good to know. I didn't know you. I thought you were kind of one polarity or the other. And then apparently you're this like one through 10 on either. It's like, that's not really talked about very much. Like the, the, no. the, the, the depth and degree there. So that's, yep. it is helpful. 
And that's the heart of what it does, because it, so the first step is, and I love that you said 360, uh, for for me and for Luminist and our approach, we start more on the one-to-one debriefs. So we do the profile XT with everyone, mm-hmm. we take them through it, it informs the workshop, because then we take it all into the workshop and we look at people holistically as a team. And a lot of assessments do this, but it's the whole one to 10 and then everybody gets mapped out. And if you are two two steps away from your colleague, well, then there's opportunity there. There's probably a lot of opportunity for conflict and a lot of opportunity to sit down and have those conversations. So the one of the things that I love about Profile XT, and you have the learning style aspect of it. So you have the behavioral and the interest, but the learning style is interesting in that Really, there's only 16% of the population that can learn through verbal. Everybody Hmm. else learns visually. That's number one. And number two, the speed in which people learn and the approach in which people learn is different. The people on the right learn as a bucket and the people on the left, although both can retain both uh, the amount, the same amount of information and both can be high performers but how they bring in that information is different. So let's say, for example, you are this high-performing organization, you hire this game-changing person, you are so Mm -hmm. excited about them, but right away they start to fail. Three months in, you want to fire this person. Well, what's really excellent about this is, okay, let's say that same company has, has Profile XT, they know the kind of person they typically hire and how they learn, and they do the profile XT on this employee, and they realize that this employee has a different learning style than everybody else. Well, great, change the training. As soon as you change the training, the next thing you know, she's a high performer again. We just needed to change the training. Now, if we didn't do that, then this person would have failed and they would have fired her. And all that investment that you would have put in this person, all of the hopes and dreams you put into this high performer are, are now out the window. So I love that aspect of it. And then the final aspect had that, is, no, please wish you well, had Well, I just, question. I wish they had had that um, in, in high school for me, you know, just know yeah. like, the only 16% <laughs> of us like learn like by listening and we're, yes, I know. And, and the speed of, well, I, yes. Well, and the other interesting thing to that Chad, and now you're going to get me all excited. So now the other interesting thing on that is, Okay. We all talk about gaslighting, right? Oh, that person gaslighted me. And in this particular situation, I'm defining gaslighting as that time, you know, when you go in and you have that one-on-one and you, you, have, you talk about this thing that you want to do, you feel like verbally you've come to an agreement, everybody's on the same page. And right. then the next thing you know, the two of you are talking to the boss and the other person throws you under the bus, or at least that's what it feels like, Right. Well, can you, if you put this, this, yeah, if you put this percentage in place and realize there's a very small population that really could hear the conversation and, and know that we were all talking on the same page, retain it in a certain way. What if we had taken the step after that meeting and written down what we thought that we heard and exchange it with one another? Well, as soon as I've coached people to start doing it, it's a game changer because then that other person says, no, that's not what we discussed. This is what we discussed. And then so the verbal complemented by written 
now gets you on the same page. And then you go talk to the boss and everybody's happy. There's no gaslighting. There's no throwing people under the bus. It's just really great communication. And that's what I love about this. And it, it, I coach it in a very positive way, in a very strengths-focused kind of way. Well, I mean, I think some people would still throw people under the bus. Like, that. this is <laughs> this is how it's uh, going to function. That's maybe another story. Uh, but yeah. overall, what we're, what we're talking about is sort of like an exchange as we're talking here. I, I'm aware. So I remember going back a tiny bit how as a professor and they were teaching us pedagogy and how to how to teach more effectively and they were like well there's all these different learning styles and we need to accommodate our teaching right. styles to all students and i have to remember, i have to admit that there were times where i was like annoyed by that i'm like well the students should be motivated and i'm going to do the best i can to communicate and yes i'll write it on the board and say it and everything but i'm now in retrospect i am more aware of how yes as a leader in that given space uh i was charged in a way to try to reach as many people as I could through the different intelligences and ways that people learn. But I also, and I, and I think that there is in terms of like thinking of employees and thinking of students, there is a way to develop awareness in our teams to recognize how do I learn better how am I communicating? And, and, and I love all of this in the spirit of just generally trying to raise our self-awareness. And I think it's possible. And that, yeah, and this goes back to big self, little self again. And mm. also one of the key tenets of Liminist, one of the things I, I loved about big self and little self, it, it also came out of one of the, your earlier podcasts and it was talking about this idea of happiness. And when it comes to the workplace, there are basic needs that need to be met. And I know some HR people don't like, they sort of cringe at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But let's just say right. instead of self-actualization at the top, <laughs> we put big self on the top, right? Yeah. So if, if people aren't, if they don't feel like their basic needs are being met at the bottom, then it doesn't matter even how they learn because they're going to be so distracted by not understanding who they are in the organization, Such what they're responsible point. for, right? Right. And so just having those basic fundamental needs met so clear. And that's you know, going into these different workshops that I work on. Yeah, succession planning and understanding your, your ultimate goal your ultimate vision for where you want to be as an organization. But then speaking with the leadership team and getting them to understand who are they and making sure you have the right person in the right seat. And this goes back to the interest aspects of Profile XT. So it's something that you actually enjoy. Mm -hmm. the person in the right seat with the right roles and responsibilities and expectations. It's the expression, if everyone's responsible, no one's accountable. So who's actually accountable? And this comes up in marketing organizations and agencies in that they tend to be very matrixed. And so the clarity around what you're actually accountable for and what are yeah. your day-to-day -day responsibilities, it's really not clear. And then you add in the layer of 
okay, it's going to change each year because we're going to put into place this leverage model that gives you a bit of a succession plan or a career path. And so expectations for your growth also change. So now you're getting into hard skills versus soft skills. So functional leaders, these things that you were defined by the work you did, and this gets into a lot of uh, chief marketing officers. So you were, as a chief marketing officer, before you put the C in front of your title, you were expected from a functional perspective to do all these things. And that's how success was measured. And then when you now put a C, all of a sudden, you are no longer being measured by functional, aside from you know, hitting your sales numbers and your retention and customer satisfaction and all that kind of fun stuff. But the expectation in the C-suite is that you have a leadership team doing that for you. And now you're being measured by your ability to communicate to investors, to the board, to create a great leadership team, to manage up to your boss. There's so many expectations. So again, going back to those meeting basic needs and getting to that big self, you are now introducing all this complexity and all this uncertainty. And it it really, you know, it, it weighs on people and gets away in, uh, it gets in the way of that true happiness and that big self. So psychological safety would be building a culture of trust would be that foundation. Is that? Um, trust, transparency. Mm. There are a lot of aspects to, uh, that you can mm-hmm. put in there. Okay. Um, trust, you know, trust is one thing. I think trust is important. The, the challenge with the word trust, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe it's a trigger word because I am the parent of a teenager and you get a lot of, you don't trust me. kinds <laughs> 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 of aspects. Uh, it's really expectations. It's clarity. It's um, transparency. There's a lot of other things that, that come out of those workshops. There are a lot of factors to trust doing what you say you will do and many, many, many others. Uh, Wow. Those are, those are, that's very helpful, very fascinating and interesting. And so, so you are one of the, the rare women apparently who are able to play, have a golf game. You have a, that's, that's (laughs) love golf. Well, because as I understand from a recent CNN uh, opinion article about like, like 80% of the golf players are men and there it's because, well, they seem to have the more leisure time, which is sort of like a workplace, you know, discussion point of like, well, why do women not play as much golf? Well, they literally are having to be tending in the domestic sphere more. And it does feel like one of those inequity things. So it's uh, what, how, how do you find time to play golf? Well, you touched There's a lot to unpack in that statement right there. We could have a whole nother podcast. Oh, that's great. And the gender gender roles and my opinion on that. Uh, So when it comes to, there's actually a bigger question on that. And it's, it's this idea of people ask the question, how do you live a balanced life? And you really mm-hmm. don't, you live a prioritized life. And my recommendation to men and women, and in, in terms of the time aspect of golf, now there's another aspect of golf I'll touch on in a second, but in terms yeah. of the time aspect of golf, it, it really depends on priorities. You know, I played golf with my husband before my kid was born. 
And then once she was born, golf no longer became a priority. My priority was to her. I was traveling a lot. I wanted my weekends and I wanted every moment to be with her. My husband continued to play, but he made sure he went out on the first tee time. So he would be home as well. And plus we play on a course that if you don't finish in four hours, you're going way too slow. So we, we get it done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then fast forward to today where the kid wants to sleep until, well, longer than we will let her. (laughs) So now you have time there. So it's become, it's become more a priority and I prioritize it into my work week. I have changed for me, because I am a business leader and business owner, and I will do it the same for anybody that I hire in the future is, it's no longer a Monday through Friday. It's a, what does your week look like kind of aspect. And okay, so Tuesdays, that's when the nine holder women play. So I usually block off my Tuesdays to play with them. Uh, Saturday mornings become a, a work day. Uh, If it's volleyball season, then I need to reconfigure my week to work with me in a different way. So I'm more fluid and dynamic in in my ability. And it's exciting to listen to the podcasts, all the podcasts and news stories I listen to, but businesses and companies are starting to look at that differently as well. How can we give more flexibility and more fluidity to um, our employees so they can get the work done. And I guess, I guess we're coming back again to learning style. It goes back to work style. Well, people I, focus well in the morning versus the afternoon. Those people who focus better in the afternoon, I don't know how they do it. Uh, but this, I almost wish I had asked the golf question at the beginning, because it is unpacking a lot of really interesting talking points. And I guess the only one I wanted to follow up on though, that we have time for is the idea of what do you think, what do you make then of like the advocacy for a Monday through Thursday work week and the, you know, Thursday is the new Friday kind of movement. Um, We've had Joe Sanic on talking about that idea. And I really admire his ability for all that he gets done to get it done uh, Monday through Thursday. I, as a young, you know, a young business owner, I'm not that young, but my business is, I just absolutely cannot get it done Monday through Thursday. And more like you, I'm finding myself working a lot throughout the week. And yes, taking priority moments here and there where we sort of have to. But sometimes then I pause and I'm like, but we're constantly talking about burnout and not overworking. Uh, Am I not being a good example of the very thing that we're advocating for at times and, and just talking myself out of it? So I don't know. What do you think? Well, this gets us into a whole diversity conversation. Mm. The person who want is the person or people that are pushing for a four day work week haven't met the middle school and high school parents who need to leave by four o'clock to get oh, their kid to yes. volleyball practice. Uh, that it, it was interesting, and and I you know props to Razorfish when I came back from maternity leave. I, one of the biggest things I said is I, I need to leave by four, four thirty. It means I'll get in earlier, but I need to leave by four, four thirty Cause we're in town. I live outside in Atlanta where they call it inside the perimeter, outside the perimeter. I live oh, outside yeah. the perimeter. It's going to take me an hour to get home. I needed to pick up my kid 
from daycare because my hu- husband did morning duty. The whole concept of four-day work week or this-day work week or what have you, the reason why it's not successful to this point is we're not taking into consideration the diverse needs of all the different people, generations, working styles, learning styles, and all of that. One of the things I've tried to put into place with other organizations now, challenge with service organizations is you serve at the pleasure of your client. So it makes it very difficult. But I've Mm -hmm. always, in terms of my teams, I've always had the mindset of you need to do what you need to do in the time that you need to do it. Just make sure to communicate to the people around you. You know, I've had people and, you know, it's a girl thing. There are women out there, not me. There are women out there that it takes them three hours to get their hair done. And they don't do it on the weekends because for some reason, service organizations don't cater to working women. I'm not really certain why. And so they will schedule that time and they will make sure that that's their working time. They are getting the hair done, but they have their computer on their lap and they are working. They just don't, you know, can't do meetings during that time, but they get they have figured out a way to be highly successful women and do all the other stuff like highly priorities. Right. Well, and hair is one, but also doing cupcakes for kindergarten or, you know, like my husband um, volunteers at the high school every other week. Work and life has become more, especially post COVID. um, Well, not I shouldn't post real, the heart of the pandemic. Work and life has become a blended situation. And so it's no longer this concept of a four-day work week that we need to be looking at. Mm. We need to be looking at the ability to give, to treat our, our employees like adults, to set, make expectations really clear. So if you give them this flexibility, you trust them to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, then give them the ability to come in when they want and and depart when they need to and work when they need to. Like I did timesheets on Sunday mornings because that was the only time <laughs> that I could manage to really get up the gumption to do timesheets. For some reason, Sunday morning was magical for timesheets. But if a company made me get them done on a Friday, Oof. yeah, there were certain companies I understood why. And, and if I was going to be respectful to my fellow coworker who had to get certain reports done by Friday, I would do it. But if I had the flexibility or the preference, I would get it done another day. I think those are some fantastic takeaways just right there for organizations to listen to, to be, to be, to be flexible and to treat your employees like adults, even if they're millennials or Gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just remember millennials are old now. There's a lot of TikToks about that. Um, they are. The other thing, very quickly, and I know we're running out of time, but it does relate to big self and um, and little self, is women learning golf. <laughs> yes. There's a lot. There's a lot of from a prioritization perspective, I believe, and this is this is my testament of one, and lots of conversations of other female golfers is it goes back to this concept of fear. The hmm. what if I fail? But what if you fly mm. and and the fear of uh, and this goes back to why are there so many female programs out there? And it's because we learn differently. We like to learn with one another. We tend to interact with men in a different way. 
I really feel like it's the intimidation. That's why it's so important, you know, again, using golf as a business analogy is that there might be that fear, that intimidation. And if, mm-hmm. if there is the right training for the right people in the right learning style, there's an organization called Operation 36 focused on getting more women into golf. Mm-hmm. Then they do gain the confidence. And then when given the opportunity to play with men, they realize men are just as bad as we are. <laughs> play golf. <laughs> and then the intimidation is over. And then it's really wonderful. So I really feel like there's another thing. The golf can be a great analogy for business and in a lot of the things that we talked about today. Well, I agree with that. And uh, I advocate for disc golf. It's cheap and it doesn't take as long to play. Um, I heard about that and it's beautiful. These places that they have set up are supposed to be gorgeous. I haven't done it yet. I'll have to try. But no golfer takes me seriously. When I say I can appreciate golf from disc golf, (laughs) but they just chuckle. Um, (laughs) Carol, it has been a delight to have you on. Great to meet you and hear about your ideas. Really, thank you very much for sharing of your time with us uh, on The Big Self Show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life and to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. And I think what Teresa Caro is sharing with us is this idea of needing to be open to what we need to learn. We may be a leader in a relatively thriving organization, but we recognize things could be better. Maybe it's because we're navigating a difficult transition, either in the organization or maybe in our own life. And we need to be able to give good feedback to others as well as to receive it. And we need to trust the proven process when coaches are invited to step in and help them achieve results. We also hear concepts around different learning styles and different gender needs and expectations in the workplace. It turns out when we're under stress or finding ourselves betwixt and between, as Richard Rohr mentions in the idea of being in a liminal state, that we are most prepared to learn new things. And we are all about learning new things at BigSelfSchool.com, where we offer one-to-one coaching as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Reach out to us and let's see how we can work together together. And we'll see you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.